0: Chapter 3 The seventy young women of ages varying in the main from nineteen to one and twenty, though several were older, who at this date filled the species of nunnery known as the training school at Melchester, formed by a very mixed community, which included the daughters of mechanics, curates, surgeons, shopkeepers, farmers, dairymen, soldiers, sailors, and villagers. They sat in the large schoolroom of the establishment on the evening previously described, and word was passed round that Sue Bridehead had not come in at closing time. "'She went out with her young man,' said a second-year student, who knew about young men. "'And Miss Traceley saw her at the station with him. She'll have it hot when she does come home.' "'She said he was her cousin,' observed a youthful new girl." That excuse has been made a little too often in this school to be effectual in saving our souls, said the head girl of the year dryly. The fact was that only twelve months before there had occurred a lamentable seduction of one of the pupils who had made the same statement in order to gain meetings with her lover. The affair had created a scandal, and the management had consequently been rough on cousins ever since. At nine o'clock, the names were called, Sue's being pronounced three times sonorously by Mrs. Traceley without eliciting an answer. At a quarter past nine, the 70 stood up to sing the evening hymn and then knelt down to prayers. After prayers, they went in to supper, and every girl's thought was, Where is Sue Brighthead? Some of the students who had seen Jude from the window felt that they would not mind risking her punishment for the pleasure of being kissed by such a kindly-faced young man. Hardly one among them believed in the cousinship. Half an hour later, they all lay in their cubicles, their tender feminine faces upturned to the flaring gas jets, which at intervals stretched down the long dormitories, every face bearing the legend, the the weaker, upon it as the penalty of the sex wherein they were molded by which no possible exertion of their willing hearts and abilities could be made strong, while the inexorable laws of nature remain what they are. They formed a pretty, suggestive, pathetic sight of whose pathos and beauty they were themselves unconscious, and would not discover till, amid the storms and strains of after years, with their injustice, loneliness, childbearing, and bereavement, their minds would revert to this experience, as to something which had been allowed to slip past them insufficiently regarded one of the mistresses came in to turn out the lights and before doing so gave a final glance at sue's cot which remained empty and at her little dressing table at the foot which like all the rest was ornamented with various girlish trifles framed photographs being not the least conspicuous among them sue's table had a moderate show two men in their filigree, and velvet frames standing together beside her looking-glass. "'Who are these men? Did she ever say?' asked the mistress. "'Strictly speaking, relations portraits are only allowed on these tables, you know. "'One, the middle-aged man,' said a student in the next bed, "'is the schoolmaster she served under, Mr. Philotston. "'And the other, this undergraduate in cap and gown? Who is he?' He was a friend, or was. She has never told his name. Was it either of these two who came for her? No. You are quite sure twas not the undergraduate? Quite. He was a young man with a black beard. The lights were promptly extinguished, and till they fell asleep, the girls indulged in conjectures about Sue and wondered what games she had carried on in London and at Christminster before she came here some of the more restless ones getting out of bed and looking from the millioned windows at the vast west front of the cathedral opposite, at the spire rising behind it. When they awoke the next morning, they glanced into Sue's nook to find it still without a tenant. After the early lessons by gaslight, in half-toilet, and when they had come up to dress for breakfast, the bell of the entrance gate was heard to ring loudly, The mistress of the dormitory went away, and presently came back to say that the principal's orders were that nobody was to speak to bride's head, without permission. When, accordingly, Sue came into the dormitory to hastily tidy herself, looking flushed and tired, she went to her cubicle in silence, none of them coming out to greet her or to make inquiry. When they had gone downstairs, they found she did not follow them into the dining hall to breakfast and they had learnt that she had been severely reprimanded, and ordered to a solitary room for a week, there to be confined, to take her meals, and do all her reading. At this, the seventy murmured, the sentence being, they thought, too severe. A round robin was presented, and sent in to the principal, asking for a remission of Sue's punishment. No notice was taken. Towards evening, When the geography mistress began dictating her subject, the girls in the class sat with folded arms. You mean you are not going to work, said the mistress at last. I may as well tell you that it had been ascertained by the young man Bridehead stayed out with was not her cousin. For the very good reason that she has no such relative, we have written to Christminster to ascertain. We're willing to take her word said the head girl this young man was discharged from his work at christminster for drunkenness and blasphemy in public houses and he has come here to live entirely to be near to her however they remained stolid and motionless and the mistress left the room to inquire from her superiors what was to be done presently towards dusk the pupils as they sat heard exclamations from the first-year's girls in an adjoining classroom, and one rushed in to say that Sue Brighthead had got out of the back window of the room in which she had been confined, escaped in the dark across the lawn, and disappeared. How she had managed to get out of the garden, nobody could tell, as it was bounded by the river, and at the bottom, the side door was locked. They went in and looked at the empty room, the casement between the middle mullions of which stood open. The lawn was again searched with a lantern, every bush and shrub being examined, but she was nowhere hidden. Then the porter of the front gate was interrogated, and on reflection he said that he remembered hearing a sort of splashing in the stream at the back, but he had taken no notice, thinking some ducks had come down the river from above. "'She must have walked through the river,' said a mistress, or drowned herself." said the porter. The mind of the matron was horrified, not so much at the possible death of Sue as at the possible half-column detailing the event in all the newspapers, which, added to the scandal of the year before, would give the college an unenviable notoriety for many months to come. More lanterns were procured, and the river examined, and then the last, on the opposite shore, which was open to the fields, some little boot tracks were discernible in the mud, which left no doubt that the too excitable girl had waded through a depth of water, reaching nearly to her shoulders, for this was the chief river of the county, and was mentioned in all geography books with respect. As Sue had not brought disgrace upon the school by drowning herself, the matron began to speak superciliously of her, and to express gladness that she was gone. On the same On the self-same evening, Jude sat in his lodgings by the close gate. Often at this hour, after dusk, he would enter the silent close and stand opposite the house that contained Sue and watch the shadows of the girls' heads passing to and fro upon the blinds and wish he had nothing else to do but sit reading and learning all day what many of the thoughtless inmates despised. But tonight, having finished tea, and brushed himself up. He was deep in the perusal of the twenty-ninth volume of Pusey's Library of the Fathers, a set of books which he had purchased of a second-hand dealer at a price that seemed to him to be one of the miraculous cheapness for that invaluable work. He fancied he heard something rattle lightly against his window. Then he heard it again. Certainly somebody had thrown gravel. He rose and gently lifted the sash. Jude, from below. Sue. Yes, it is. Can I come up without being seen? Oh, yes. Then don't come down. Shut the window. Jude waited, knowing that she could enter easily enough through the front door being open merely by a knob which anybody could turn, as in most old country towns. He palpated at the thought that she had fled to him in her trouble as he had fled to her in his. What counterparts they were, He unlatched the door of his room, heard a stealthy rustle on the dark stairs, and in a moment she appeared in the light of his lamp. He went up to seize her hand, and found she was clammy as a marine deity, and that her clothes clung to her like the robes upon the figures in the pantheon frieze. "'I'm so cold,' she said through her chattering teeth. "'Can I come by your fire, Jude?' She crossed to his little grate and the very little fire. But as the water dripped from her as she moved, the idea of drying herself was absurd. Whatever have you done, darling? he asked with alarm, the tender epithet slipping out unawares. Walked through the largest river in the country. That's what I've done. They locked me up for being out with you, and it seemed so unjust that I couldn't bear it, so I got out of the window and escaped across the stream. She had begun her explanation in her usual slightly independent tones but before she had finished the thin pink lips trembled and she could hardly refrain from crying dear sue he said you must take off all of your things let me see you must borrow some from the landlady i'll ask her no no don't don't let her know for god's sake we are so near the school that they'll come after me then you must put on mine you don't mind oh no "'My Sunday suit, you know, it is close here. "'In fact, everything was close and handy in Jude's single chamber, "'because there was not room for it to be otherwise. "'He opened a drawer, took out his best dark suit, "'and giving the garments a shake, said, "'Now, how long shall I give you?' Ten minutes.' "'Jude left the room and went into the street "'where he walked up and down. "'A clock struck half past seven, and he returned.' Sitting in his only armchair, he saw a slim and fragile being masquerading as himself on a Sunday, so pathetic in her defenselessness that his heart felt big with the sense of it. On two other chairs before the fire were her wet garments. She blushed as he sat down beside her, but only for a moment. "'I suppose, Jude, it is odd that you should see me like this and all my things hanging there. Yet what nonsense! They are only a woman's clothes.' sexless cloth and linen i wish i didn't feel so ill and sick will you dry my clothes now please do jude and i'll get a lodging by and by it is not late yet no you shan't if you are ill you must stay here dear dear sue what can i get for you i don't know i can't help shivering i wish i could get warm jude put on her his great coat in addition and then ran out to the nearest public house once he returned with a little bottle in his hand. Here's six of best brandy, he said. Now you drink it, dear, all of it. I can't drink out of the bottle, can I? Jude fetched the glass from the dressing table and administered the spirit in some water. She gasped a little, but gulped it down and lay back in the armchair. She then began to relate circumstantially her experiences since they had parted, but... In the middle of her story, her voice faltered, her head nodded, and she ceased. She was in a sound sleep. Jude, dying of anxiety, lest she should have caught a chill which might permanently injure her, was glad to hear the regular breathing. He softly went nearer to her, and observed that a warm flush now rose her hitherto blue cheeks, and felt that her hanging head was no longer cold. Then he stood with his back to the fire regarding her, and saw in her almost a divinity. Chapter Four Jude's reverie was interrupted by the creak of footsteps ascending the stairs. He whisked Sue's clothing from the chair where it was drying, thrust it under the bed, and sat down next to his book. Somebody knocked, and opened the door immediately. It was the landlady. "'Oh, I didn't know whether you were in or not, Mr. Fawley. "'I wanted to know if you would require supper. "'I see you've a young gentleman... "'Yes, ma'am. "'But... "'I think I won't come down tonight. "'Will you bring supper up on a tray? "'And I'll have a cup of tea as well.' "'It was Jude's custom to go downstairs to the kitchen "'and eat his meals with the family, to save trouble. "'His landlady brought up the supper, however,' on this occasion, and he took it from her at the door. When she had descended, he set the teapot on the hob and drew out Sue's clothes anew, but they were far from dry. A thick woolen gown, he found, held a deal of water. So he hung them up again and enlarged his fire and mused as the steam from the garments went up the chimney. Suddenly she said, Jude! Yes, all right. How do you feel now? Better. Quite well. Why, I fell asleep, didn't I? What time is it? Not late, surely. It is past ten. Is it really? What shall I do? She said, starting up. Stay where you are. Yes, that's what I want to do. But I don't know what they would say. And what will you do? I'm going to sit here by the fire all night and read. Tomorrow is Sunday and I haven't to go out anywhere. Perhaps you will be saved a severe illness by resting there. Don't be frightened, I'm all right. Look here what I've got for you, some supper. When she had sat upright, she breathed plaintively and said, I do feel rather weak still. I thought I was well. And I ought not to be here, ought I? But the supper fortified her somewhat and when she had had some tea and had lain back again, she was bright and cheerful. The tea must have been green or too long-drawn, for she seemed preternaturally wakeful afterwards. Though, Jude, who had not taken any, began to feel heavy till her conversation fixed his attention. You called me a creature of civilization, or something, didn't you? She said, breaking a silence. It was very odd you should have done that. Why? Well, because it is provokingly wrong. I am a sort of negation of it. You are very philosophical, and negation is profound talking. Is it? Do I strike you as being learned? She asked with a touch of raillery. No, not learned. Only you don't talk quite like a girl. Well, a girl who has had no advantages. I've had advantages. I don't know Latin and Greek, though I know the grammars of those tongues. But I know most of the Greek and Latin classics through translations, and other books, too. I read Lempierre, Catalyst, Marshall, Juvenel, Lucian, Beaumont, and Fletcher, Boraccio, Scardin, De Brantommé, Stern, Defoe, Smollett, Fielding, Shakespeare, the Bible, and other such. And found that all interest in the unwholesome part of those books ended with its mystery. You have read more than I, he said with a sigh. How came you to read some of those queerer ones? Well, she said thoughtfully, it was by accident. My life has been entirely shaped by what people call a peculiarity in me. I have no fear of men, as such, nor of their books. I have mixed with them, one or two of them particularly, almost as one of their own sex. I mean... I have not felt about them as most women are taught to feel, to be on their guard against attacks on their virtue, for no average man, no man short of a sensual savage, will molest a woman by day or night, at home or abroad, unless she invites him, until she says by a look, come on, he is always afraid to, and if you never say it or look it, he never comes, however, What I was going to say is that when I was 18, I formed a friendly intimacy with an undergraduate at Christminster, and he taught me a great deal, and he lent me books, which I should never have got hold of otherwise. Is your friendship broken off? Oh, yes. He died, poor fellow, two or three years after he had taken his degree and left Christminster. You saw a good deal of him, then, I suppose? Yes. We used to go about together, on walking tours, breeding tours, and things of that sort. Like, two men almost. He asked me to live with him, and I agreed to, by letter. But when I joined him in London, I found he meant a different thing from what I meant. He wanted me to be his mistress, in fact. But I wasn't in love with him. And on my saying I should go away if he didn't agree to my plan, he did so. We shared a sitting room for 15 months... And he became a leader writer for one of the great London dailies till he was taken ill and had to go abroad. He said I was breaking his heart by holding out against him so long at such close quarters. He could never have believed it of a woman. I might play the game too often, he said. He came home merely to die. His death caused a terrible remorse in me for my cruelty, although I hope he died of consumption and not of me entirely. I went down to Sanborn to his funeral and was his only mourner. He left me a little money, because I broke his heart, I suppose. That's how men are, so much better than women. Good heavens! What did you do then? Ah, now you are angry with me, she said, a contralto note of tragedy coming suddenly into her silvery voice. I wouldn't have told you if I had known— No, I'm not. Tell me all. Well, I invested his money, poor fellow, in a bubble scheme and lost it. I lived about London by myself for some time, and then I returned to Christminster as my father, who was also in London, and he had started as an art metal worker near Longacre, wouldn't have me back. And I got that occupation in the artist shop where you found me, and I said you didn't know how bad I was. Jude looked round upon the armchair and its occupant, as if to read more carefully the creature he had given shelter to. His voice trembled as he said, However, you have lived, Sue, I believe you are as innocent as you are unconventional. I am not particularly innocent, as you see, now that I have twitched the robe from that blank lay figure your fancy draped said she with ostensible sneer, though he could hear she was brimming with tears. But I have never yielded myself to any lover, if that's what you mean. I have remained quite as I began. I quite believe you, but some women would not have remained as they began. Perhaps not. Better women would not. People say I must be cold-natured, sexless on account of it, but I won't have it. Some of the most Passionately erotic poets have been the most self-contained in their daily lives. Have you told Mr. Philotson about this university scholar, friend? Yes, long ago. I've never made any secret of it to anybody. What did he say? He did not pass any criticism, only said I was everything to him, whatever I did, and things like that. Jude felt much depressed. She seemed to get further and further away from him, with her strange ways and curious unconsciousness of gender. Aren't you really vexed with me, dear Jude? She suddenly asked, in a voice of such extraordinary tenderness that it hardly seemed to come from the same woman who had just told her story so lightly. I would rather offend anybody in the world than you, I think. I don't know whether I am vexed or not. I know I care very much about you. I care as much for you as for anybody I ever met. You don't care more? There, I ought not to have said that. Don't answer it. There was another long silence. He felt that she was treating him cruelly, though he could not quite say in what way. Her very helplessness seemed to make her so much stronger than he. I am awfully ignorant on general matters, although I have worked so hard he said to turn the subject. "'I am absorbed in theology, you know. "'And what do you think I should be doing "'just about now if you weren't here? "'I would be saying my evening prayers. "'I suppose you wouldn't like—' "'Oh, no, no,' she answered. "'I would rather not, if you don't mind. "'I should seem so— "'such a hypocrite. "'I thought you wouldn't join, "'so I didn't propose it. "'You must remember that I hope "'to be a useful minister some day. To be ordained, I think you said? Yes. Then you haven't given up the idea? I thought perhaps you had by this time. Of course not. I fondly thought at first that you felt as I do about that. As you were so mixed up in Christminster Anglicanism and Mr. Philotsden, I have no respect for a Christminster whatsoever, except in a qualified degree on its intellectual side, said Sue Bridehead earnestly. My dear friend that I spoke of took that out of me. He was the most irreligious man I ever knew, and the most moral. And intellect at Christminster is new wine in old bottles. The medievalism of Christminster must go, be sloughed off, or Christminster itself will have to go. To be sure, at times one couldn't help having a sneaking liking for the traditions of the old faith as preserved by a section of the thinkers there in touching and simple sincerity. But when I was in my saddest, rightest mind, I always felt, Oh, ghastly glories of saints, dead limbs of gibbeted gods. Sue, you are not a good friend of mine to talk like that. Then I won't, dear Jude. The emotional throat note had come back, and she turned her face away. I still think... Westminster has much that is glorious, though I was resentful because I couldn't get there. He spoke gently, and resisted his impulse to pique her on to tears. "'It is an ignorant place, except as to the townspeople, artisans, drunkards, and paupers,' she said, perverse still at his differing from her. They see life as it is, of course, but few of the people in the colleges do. You prove it in your own person.' You are one of the very men Christminster was intended for when the colleges were founded. A man with a passion for learning, but no money, or opportunities, or friends. But you were elbowed off the pavement by the millionaires' sons. Well, I can do without what it confers. I care for something higher. And I for something broader, truer, she insisted. At present intellect in Christminster is pushing one way, and religion the other, and so they stand stock-still, like two rams butting each other. What would Mr. Philotston? It is a place full of fetishists and ghost-seers. He noticed that whenever he tried to speak of the schoolmaster, she turned the conversation to some generalizations about the offending university. Jude was extremely, morbidly curious about her life as Philotsden's protege and betrothed, yet, She would not enlighten him. Well, that's just what I am, too, he said. I am fearful of life, specter-seeing always. But you are good and dear, she murmured. His heart bumped, and he made no reply. You are in the Tractarian stage just now, are you not? She added, putting on flippance to hide real feeling, a common trick with her. Let me see, when was I there? In the year 1800, and there's a sarcasm in which is rather unpleasant to me, Sue. Now, will you do what I want you to? At this time, I read a chapter and then say my prayers as I told you. Now, will you concentrate your attention on any book of these you like, and sit with your back to me and leave me to my custom? You are sure you won't join me? I'll look at you. No, don't tease, Sue. Very well, I'll do just as you bid me, and I won't vex you, Jude, she replied in the tone of a child who is going to be good forever after, turning her back upon him accordingly. A small Bible, other than the one he was using, lay near her, and during his retreat, she took it up and turned over the leaves. Jude, she said brightly, when he had finished and come back to her, will you let me make you a new... New Testament, like the one I made for myself at Christminster? Oh yes, how was that one made? I altered my old one by cutting up all the Apostles and Gospels into separate brochures and rearranging them in chronological order as written, beginning the book with Thessalonians, following on with the Apostles, and putting the Gospels much further on. Then I had the volume rebound. My university friend, Mr. But never mind his name, poor boy, said it was an excellent idea, and I know that reading it afterwards made it twice as interesting as before, and twice as understandable. "Hm," said Jude with a sense of sacrilege. And what a literary enormity this is, she said as she glanced into the pages of Solomon's song. I mean, the synopsis at the head of each chapter explaining away the real nature of that rhapsody? You needn't be alarmed. Nobody claims inspiration for the chapter headings. Indeed, many divines treat them with contempt. It seems the drollest thing to think of the four-and-twenty elders, or bishops, or whatever number they were, sitting with long faces and writing down such stuff. Jude looked pain. You are quite Voltarian, he murmured. Indeed? then I won't say any more except that people have no right to falsify the Bible. I hate such humbug as could attempt to plaster over with ecclesiastical abstractions such ecstatic, natural, human love as lies in the great and passionate song. Her speech had grown spirited, and almost petulant at his rebuke, and her eyes moist. I wish I had a friend here to support me, but nobody is ever on my side. But, my dear Sue, my very dear Sue, I am not against you, he said, taking her hand, and surprised at her introducing personal feelings into mere argument. Yes, you are. Yes, you are, she cried, turning away her face that he might not see her brimming eyes. You are on the side of the people in the training school, or at least you seem almost to be. What I insist on is that to explain such verses as this, Whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? By the note, the church profess her faith, is supremely ridiculous. Well, then let it be. You make such a personal matter of everything. I am only too inclined just now to apply the words profanely. "'You know you are the fairest among women to me, come to that.' "'But you are not to say it now,' Sue replied, her voice changing to its softest note of severity. Then their eyes met, and they shook hands like cronies in a tavern, and Jude saw the absurdity of quarreling on such a hypothetical subject, and she, the silliness of crying about what was written in an old book like the Bible— "'I won't disturb your convictions. I really won't,' she went on soothingly. For now, he was rather more ruffled than she. "'But I did want and long to ennoble some man to high aims. "'And when I saw you, I knew you wanted to be my comrade. "'I, shall I confess it, thought that man might be you. "'But you take so much tradition on trust that I don't know what to say.' "'Well, dear,' "'I suppose one must take some things on trust. "'Life isn't long enough to work out everything "'in Euclid problems before you believe it. "'I take Christianity.' "'Well, perhaps you might take something worse. "'Indeed I might. "'Perhaps I've done so,' he thought of Arabella. "'I won't ask what, "'because we are going to be very nice with each other, aren't we? "'And never, never vex each other any more. "'She looked up trustfully.' and her voice seemed trying to nestle in his breast. "'I shall always care for you,' said Jude. "'And I for you, because you are single-hearted "'and forgiving to your faulty and tiresome little Sue.' "'He looked away, for that tenderness of hers was too harrowing. "'Was it that which had broken the heart of the poor leader-writer, "'and was he to be the next one? "'But Sue was so dear.' if he could only get over the sense of her sex, as she seemed to be able to do so easily of his, what a comrade she would make, for their difference on opinion on conjectural subjects only drew them closer together on matters of daily human experience. She was nearer to him than any other woman he had ever met, and he could scarcely believe that time, creed, or absence would ever divide him from her but his grief at her incredulities returned. They sat on till she fell asleep again, and he nodded in his chair likewise. Whenever he aroused himself, he turned her things, made up the fire anew. About six o'clock he awoke completely, and lighting a candle, found that her clothes were dry. Her chair being a far more comfortable one than his, she still slept on inside his great coat, looking as warm as a new bun and boyish as a ganymede. Placing the garments by her and touching her on the shoulder, he went downstairs and washed himself by starlight in the yard.